It's a pleasure to be back preaching again. I'm grateful uh, that Tony's given me this opportunity while he's out of town. And we're going to be looking today at Acts 2, verses 37 through 41. So if you could turn there. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts. And so we've wound our way through the first and second chapter, and we're toward the end of the second chapter today. And I just want to recap where we've been. What we've looked at the past couple Sundays has been the day of Pentecost. And if you've been around church for any period of time, you know that's the time when the Holy Spirit came upon believers in Jerusalem. And what we saw the past couple weeks has been Peter's speech to a crowd of people that had been gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. And the first part of the message that we heard two weeks ago was Peter recapping a prophecy in Joel. And what he said in Joel was that the Spirit of God had come And the reason the Spirit of God had come is because there was an offer of salvation to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And then last week we saw that Peter goes and he talks about what David said about the Messiah, that the Messiah would have to be resurrected from the dead, and that that wasn't David himself, but it was someone else. And so Peter points to Jesus as the person who is prophesied. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And he told these people that the person that you had killed is now Savior and Lord. And so this was the message that Peter gave, really the first sermon of the church age. And today we're going to be looking at the response to that message. And so if you could stand, we're going to read Acts 2, and this is 37 through 41. And it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God who has always had a plan. And Lord, we thank you that your plan is the salvation of our souls. And Lord, we look today at your word and I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would speak through me, through this message, through these words. And Lord, that your will would be done through whatever you desire us to know today. We thank you, Lord. We praise you that we have the opportunity to to speak openly, to be free. And so bless this time, Lord, as we learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So I titled this sermon, How to Change the World, which, as somebody pointed out, is not a very Tony title. But I was really thinking about everything that's been going on lately in in the world. And we talked about the election that's coming up in a couple days, and it feels like every election for the past however long I can remember, has been contentious in some way. I usually know what's the most hot-button issue based on the number of signs you see on the road. And on top of that, there's the war in Israel. And there's been all of these really statements about this could be World War III and, and all of these things that it could escalate and people are nervous. And then on top of that, I know the company that I work for, there's been a lot of changes and people are talking about the economy and how things aren't good and there could be a recession and There's really a lot of things for people to be afraid of. 
And it often, especially around election time, leads to this question, what do we do? How do we change it? How do we change the world? How do we make things better? How do we turn course and go in a different direction than how we're going? And one of the things that I was really thinking about with that question is, I came to the realization that I can't change the world. I don't have the capacity within myself, and I would say even if we all collectively pooled our resources and tried to change the world, we'd make a very small dent in the issues that exist. And so really, as I was looking at this passage in Acts and trying to figure out what does God want to say to us about this, it made me realize that I may not be able to change the world, but God has been working through his Holy Spirit in the church for 2,000 years, and he's been changing the world since the day of Pentecost, through the church. And so one of the things I really want us to see through this is a spiritual practice that I think a lot of churches have gotten away from, but it's something that we see in Scripture all the time. We see that when a generation is going through a hard time, their focus is to look back at what God has done for them before and then to remember those things and say, God has done it before, he will do it again. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to look at what did God do then that he can continue to do today? And I think there's three things that I saw as I was looking through this passage that I want us to have some hope in that God works and how he works and how he will continue to work. And those three things are God speaks to people's hearts. He provides a path to follow him, and he gives us eternal gifts. So again, he speaks to people's hearts, he provides a path to follow him, and he gives us eternal gifts. So let's take the first one. He speaks to people's hearts. So if we look at verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And I want us to notice something here that I don't think is obvious when you just read that considering what Peter's just said, that these people had crucified Jesus and that he is now Lord and Savior and he sits at the right hand of God and now he is judge of the world. One of the things we miss is this is a miracle. Because if any of you have been around religious people for any amount of time, you realize they don't change their mind. They don't get cut to the heart. If you tell them that they're doing something wrong, if you confront them, most of the time they're going to either fight back against that or they're just going to completely shut down and walk away. And the reason that this is a miracle is because it's not the words that Peter said, but it's the power that's working through the words that Peter said that made the difference. And we see this in Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it's not that Peter had the best message ever, and that's why these people responded. It was because there was a power behind what Peter spoke. There was a power behind the truths that he was saying that motivated the heart change in these people. Because it's, it's more likely that this group of people, being Jewish people, would have seen him as a heretic, or a heretic and wanted to attack him. Really, that's, that's what should have happened. And we see that actually through the book of Acts, that some people respond that way to the message, but not in this instance. And I know personally in my own life, I've had conversations, and I can think of one in particular with a security guard at the place that I worked. He was Muslim, and he knew I was a Christian. And we had conversations back and forth about different things, and we ranged on topics from who is Satan to, you know, what is God like. And what I know from those conversations is when he would say, well, God is Tawheed you know, Allah is one. He was trying to convince me based on, well, this book says this, and this is why you should believe it. Whereas what we believe as Christians is not 
because the words are there, because we have our facts straight, that's why you should believe it. But what we say is, this word has power. And it's not because somebody has the best words or the best arguments. It's because when you hear the words of truth, there's a response. And that's God working in the lives of people. And so, this led to what's the next part of verse 37, where these religious people asked a very religious question. They said, what do we do? And they called them brothers, which I think is interesting. They recognized that these people were their kin, not someone who was against them. And so they said, what must we do? And if you think about what happened at Pentecost, there was, it said, a sound of strong wind and these flames of fire that came upon people's heads. And they're right to ask a religious question because the way God had worked in the past, when he came in fire on Mount Sinai, there was Ten Commandments that came after that. He delivered through Moses what he required of his people. And so there was fire again at Pentecost, and you would expect Peter to then say, okay, well, I need to recap the Sermon on the Mount. I need to list off the requirements that Jesus said in these various teachings. I need to do all of these things. And I think if you had a religious background, you would expect that. And I think we do the same thing as Christians a lot of the times. We've seen how God's worked in the past, and we just expect it's going to be a one-for-one carbon copy today. But what we see from Peter is different. And what we see is really the second point. We see that Peter is pointing to a path, that God is giving us a path to follow him. And in verse 38, Peter responds to these questions from these Jewish people who had heard the message, who had heard the gospel. And the first thing he says to them is repent. And why does Peter say that? Why does he start there? I mean, I think if all of us have shared our faith, I don't know that many of us have started with repent. And one of the reasons Peter started there is because Luke, who's the author of Acts, toward the end of his first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, he says in Luke 24, 45 through 46, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So what we see that even the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. And repentance is a part of that message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins has to be a part of the message. And the more that I've looked at this and the more that I've understood and studied this idea, the more I realize that it's essential. It's essential to understanding how we are to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I appreciated what Tony said last week where he said the gospel is a story. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of his life. It's the story of his death. It's the story of his resurrection. It's the story of who he is today and what he's doing today. And so if we're to understand that story and we're to proclaim that story, if someone asks us, what must we do? Repent has to be a part of it. And I think the problem is a lot of us have no idea what that word really means. And I've had a lot of conversations, which the interesting thing was, I was talking about this with people before Tony asked me to preach a few weeks ago, and I've gotten a lot of varied responses. Some people said, well, you're just supposed to feel bad about the stuff you do that God doesn't want you to do. I've had responses that say, oh, you're supposed to turn and do something else. And what I know is that when we talk about this word, there's people probably sitting here today who think, good, somebody's finally talking about repentance. You know, nobody talks about this, we need to talk about it. And then there may be other people who are sitting here thinking, the only time I see this word is when it's on a sign that says repent or you're going to hell. 
And those are really the spectrums that this word exists in. And so I think it's helpful that we start with the Greek word, which is metanoia, which means to change your mind. And the idea behind this change of mind is that there's remorse, or there is sorrow within it. So people are partly right when they say you should feel bad. Because what they're saying is, it's something that is true, that you're hearing, that it's causing you to be stirred up, cut to the heart, if you will. And what's interesting with this word is, repentance isn't so much a call to feel bad, it's a call to follow. Repentance is something that is a desire for us to move in a certain direction. And we think that this word is a church word because we hear it most at church, but what I know for sure is that our society, because the Western civilization was built upon Christian principles, a lot of these ideas have been co-opted into the society in a different way. It might not be with the term repent, but it's being used in our society. And if you think about it, all of the talk about cancel culture, people being shouted down at lectures or things like that, this is all the world using the same approach. What they're asking for, for someone to be canceled, is for them to repent. They want to use shame and fear and all of these things to force someone to change their mind, to feel bad about what they think or feel or believe, and go and follow them and do what they're doing. And so this idea of repentance isn't something that's just reserved for the church or society is forcing us to try to repent in different ways all the time. But the difference between how our society handles this idea and how the church is supposed to handle this idea is our society bases repentance on fear and they base it on power. They base it on the idea that what we should be doing is we should be coercing people to repent, coercing people into doing things a certain way because that's the way we want them to do it. And then there's fear that goes along with it. If you don't, this bad thing will happen. And when we look at repentance, we often think of, like I said, the sign. The sign that says, repent or you're going to hell. And what I'll say is, that approach in Christianity is a lot more like the world than the approach of repentance that I see in Scripture. And so to give you an example of that, I was looking at Ezekiel 18. And this is 30 verses 32. And again, Old Testament, because everybody thinks repentance is an Old Testament idea. And it says in Ezekiel 18, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God's heart in repentance isn't that people would perish. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So the people who say that God is, is, a, is a God who is about hell, I would say God is a God of, of life. It says turn and live. Repent and live. And the difference between the world's version of repentance and God's version of repentance is his repentance is based on truth and love, not fear and coercion. And so what we need to see from repentance is that it is about the love of God calling out to people, calling out to you and me and saying, hey, you're going the wrong way. And the best way I can think about this is it's like if you're walking behind somebody and they're on their cell phone and they're oblivious to everything going on around them and they're just texting away and they're heading right into an intersection of a busy street. What would you do in that situation? Maybe you would think, well, it might be a really important thing they're doing. Maybe they're transferring money to pay a bill and I don't want to interrupt. You know, Maybe they're going to be late. Or maybe they're telling somebody how they really feel. And maybe it's more 
uh, beneficial if I don't say anything because then, you know, it's a really important conversation that I could be interrupting. And I think we take that attitude towards a lot of people around us when we think about their spiritual lives. We go, well, I don't want to interrupt. You know, I don't, I don't want to get involved too much because they might be busy. They might not be interested. I would look foolish if I did it. But at the same time, what we know in that example is the right thing to do would be to call out and say, hey, look out. And that's really what repentance is about. It's about seeing ahead. It's about seeing what's coming and saying turn. And it's about action. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about repentance in general is if you look at what Peter says where he says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. A lot of people can look at repentance and say, well, repentance is is a part of salvation. You have to repent in order to be saved. But what I would say, and what I've seen from studying this word, is repentance doesn't save you. Repentance is really the first fruit of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Because repentance is kind of like the trunk of a tree. It supports everything that comes out after it, but it's not the seed itself. And the seed, what we know from Scripture, the seed is the Word of God. And if you think about it even in terms of, let's say, the simplest things that we know about Scripture. Every kid in Sunday school learns John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say whoever believes in him and repents and is baptized will have eternal life. It says whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The start, the reason they were cut to the heart, the reason they responded with the question is because there was faith working in the hearts of those people first. And so then when you ask the question, what do you do? Repentance is the first step on the path to following God. And so it's all about listening to what the truth is, what the gospel message is, and saying, I believe that. That's true. And it's from that point that you're saved. It's from that point that you have the forgiveness of sins. And repentance and baptism that come after it are steps along the path of obedience. And so what we need to see, even in the next verse, which is verse 38, it says, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Well, why baptism? It's the same question. Why repentance? Why baptism? Why those two things? And we see in the Great Commission in Matthew that Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism was as much a command and part of the message as repentance was, and Peter is being faithful to that message. And what we see from baptism especially, I think there's an attitude in the church that, well, you know, it's just something you do. Or some people have the other take that it is a part of salvation. And I don't want to get down the rabbit hole of all of that, because you can go to a lot of different verses and a lot of different places, and you can argue one way or the other, and there's some people who believe you have to baptize this way and some people who baptize that way. But what I know for sure is that baptism is a part of the process of following Jesus. And the reason I know that is because Jesus himself was baptized. And Jesus was baptized by John, and it was a baptism of repentance. That's what the baptism was. And Jesus didn't need to repent for anything. He said, I do it to fulfill all righteousness. He said, I do it because it is the right thing to do. It is God's will. It's the thing that I must pursue if I am to follow God's will. And so for us, if we claim that we truly believe in Jesus Christ, there will be actions associated with the faith that starts in us, that cuts our heart. There will be actions and steps that we have to take in pursuing Christ because he did it first. He was our example. And if you think about this with any story you've ever read, any book or movie you, have, you ever watched, you always associate with the main character. You always put yourself in the main character's shoes and you always empathize with them 
and, and you always connect with them in some way. That's what a good movie or a good book does. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we separate ourselves from this story, from this gospel, because the main character is just too hard to follow. And so the reason we follow Christ is because we know we're not perfect. The reason we get baptized because it's a baptism of repentance is because we know we need it. But the one that came before us who didn't need it did it first. And we follow him. And so baptism is essential. And we're going to see that all through the book of Acts as we go through the rest of this in this church. Baptism always followed everyone who believed. And it was quick. And sometimes I think we, we lose sight of that in the church today. We think we have a lot of time. We think, well, you know, I can go through a class, or I can wait, or I can do this or that. I don't need to necessarily get baptized. And the reality is, baptism isn't a nice-to-have. It's something that Christ requires us to do. Because if Jesus is really Lord of our lives, if he's really the one who gets to call the shots, then he gets to dictate the terms by which we follow him. And so for us, we think about this, and, you know, you can say, well, does baptism does baptism forgive sins? Again, it's the same question with repentance. The two are together. And you have to think also of the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized, but he still received salvation. So again, there's a lot of things within this that could be tension and issues between people who believe different things. But the reality is, we have to come to what's true, what's essential, what is absolutely fundamental to our faith. And what Peter says to this brand new group of people who desire to be Christians and the brand new group that is forming the church, repentance and baptism are essential. And that's a path just to start that we must follow. And that leads us to the third thing that God is doing and has done and continues to do, and that's he gives us eternal gifts. What we see in the next verse, or really the back end of 38 into verse 39, is it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And when I look at this, and the thing that I realize with this is after Jesus was baptized, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him. And again, Jesus is a model for what it looks like to be a follower of God. It's someone who has faith that God is who he says he is, And then you are doing the things that God has called you to do. And one of the things that really stood out to me as I studied this passage is Acts should really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's not, a lot of people refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles, but it wasn't the Apostles. The Apostles weren't special in and of themselves. They were fishermen with no education. The reason the Church of God moved forward is because the Holy Spirit came upon average people who had average lives And they did extraordinary things, not of their own power, but by the power of the Spirit. And so, the reason the church has survived this long, the reason why we are here today isn't because we were the strongest or the most powerful or, you know, scared people the most. It was because the platform of the Christian faith was built on truth and love. And the only way a platform that's based on truth and love exists and survives is if there's a power behind it greater than us ourselves. And so for us, and he even says in in verse 39, it's for us. It's for this generation. It's for us, average people, people who work nine to five, day in, day out. The promise is something eternal. Because really what God is promising by giving us the Holy Spirit is this life is not it. There is more. 
And the Holy Spirit's the first taste of that. The relationship with God we have is by connecting to Christ through his Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin, to convict of righteousness, and convict of the coming judgment. And it says the Spirit of God will lead us into all truth. And so as we think about why the Holy Spirit needed to come, it's because with Ten Commandments, Israel couldn't do it. With a law that we were trying our hardest to, to do, we couldn't do it. God knew that the only way that we could live the way he desires us to live is if he himself abides with us and in us. And so I think as a church, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is essential. And because the Holy Spirit is eternal, because he is essential, what we realize is as we're moving out into the world, we need to realize that people and people's souls and the lives of people, we're dealing with people who are eternal. And that's why you see in verse 40 where Peter continues. He continues talking to them. He doesn't just stop there. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And you might hear that as more harsh, or you might hear that as more shouting down, but based on what I've seen with how God deals with repentance, I see that more as a plea. It's a plea to the people, save yourself. Save yourself. The ways that you're pursuing in the world are not going to save you. The things that you think are going to last are not going to ultimately fulfill. And he's pleading with them. And what we see in verse 41 is really the response to all of this pleading and encouraging and telling the story and and pointing to the past. And we see that it says that 3,000 souls were added that day. And the people who received his word were baptized. The people that had faith followed through with an action. And I've heard verse 41 used as a way to justify taking attendance in church. You know, somebody had to count. Like, and it's funny because really the thing that I keyed in on as I was looking at this passage was the fact that it said 3,000 souls. It didn't say 3,000 people. It said 3,000 souls. And so really what this is communicating is that a decision made in the direction of following God, faith in God, is an eternal decision. It's a a decision of the soul. And I think that's hard for a lot of modern people to hear because I don't think a lot of people believe a soul exists. And what I think is really interesting, I was a psychology major in college, and the term psyche is used to describe the whole of human consciousness and the mind. And really that's the same Greek word here that's translated soul. Throughout human history, we've believed that there is something that gives us consciousness. And what the Bible would say is that's our soul. And what that means, if we have a soul, it's something that survives on past the material world that we see today. And I think when we're dealing with people and we're communicating the message of the gospel, it's really easy just to see the material part of people. That people are annoying, that people are difficult to deal with, that people have a lot of demands and they're messy. But the reality is, there's a soul within every person. And if we don't have the desire to tell those people to turn, if we don't have the desire to tell those people there is a better way, then do we really love them? Because that's what Paul said. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, what we read at weddings, he says, if I do any of these great things but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And love is at the heart of repentance. Love is at the heart of the gospel. Love is at the heart of God. And so if we're not willing to share this message, if we're not willing to respond to people with this desire, And what it says is we don't love people. 
because we don't see them as eternal. We don't see them as someone who will exist after they die. And so one of the things that I was really thinking about as I looked at this, I had the privilege to go to Israel back in August. And I stood in a lot of places where Jesus stood, and I got to see a lot of things from thousands of years of human history. And one of the things I realized is that most of the hard work that people built into building palaces on top of mountains and things that they thought would stand for eternity, all it was today is just a pile of rocks. And then somebody else came along and built some more rocks on top of the last person's pile of rocks, and then somebody else came along and built some rocks on top of the other person's pile of rocks. And that's a lot of what Israel is, is piles of rocks on piles of rocks. And what that said to me was the reality of what we try to build here, whether we're trying to build a good life or have a nice home or, you know, have a great job, all of those things will ultimately be a pile of rocks in 100 years. And the only thing that survives beyond that, the only thing that lasts beyond that, is the souls of human beings. And really what I noticed on that trip was I sensed the presence of God more in the Christians I was with than I sensed it in any of the places where Jesus once walked. Because that's what the promise of the Holy Spirit is. It's that Jesus himself dwells in those who believe, and Jesus is with us when we're by ourselves or when we're together with a body of believers. And so what we should take away from this is really three things. We all need to repent. One of the things that stands out to me is in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is talking about repentance, he's talking about repentance to churches. He's looking at churches and saying, you've lost your first love. He's, he's looking at churches and, and saying that you need to turn and you need to pursue the path that you pursued before. Because we can all get off. We can all get off that path. And I know for myself going through this, I've had times where I've had to repent. And Martin Luther, when he posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, the very first one he says that when Jesus called us to repentance in Matthew, what he was calling believers to was a life of repentance. Because we all should be repenting. And so when we communicate that message to non-believers, we're not communicating something that we're not doing ourselves. We're communicating a message that says, follow me, follow me, because I'm repenting just like you need to repent. We're all going the wrong way. That's why it says the road to destruction is broad is because there's a thousand different ways that we can end up going to destruction. But there's only one way to God. And that's the message of the gospel. That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to hear. And the second thing we need to understand is if we believe that message, we need to be baptized. If we have the opportunity to do it, we need to be baptized. And it's not a question of if it's convenient, it's a question of obedience. And so if there's people here that want to be baptized, I, I highly recommend you talk to Tony, talk to the elders, schedule time. I mean, we have a baptismal there. You can do it. And it's a step of obedience. It's really showing that the faith that is in you is something that you want to live out and show the world. And the last thing I would say is, again, see people for their soul. See them for who they are and who they could be in Christ, not who they are yelling and screaming and acting terrible in your face. See them for who they could be in Christ. And as we move into a time of communion, I want us to really think about the fact that the gospel is the story of Jesus loving us so much that he would take on himself 
our sins. He would die for our, our problems, our things, that our hang-ups, the things that bring us guilt and shame. That's what Jesus came to cure. And he died the death we should have died. He took upon himself the guilt for the sin that we commit. And he rose again the third day to say that death is not the end. That we are eternal beings and that there is a promise of an eternal happiness one day. And it's not in the physical right now, but it's something that he promises us through the resurrection of the dead. And that's the story of the gospel. And Jesus sits at the right hand of God today and he's waiting for the time where he's going to come back and gather the church. And that's the story. Whether you believe it or not, that's the story. And so what communion says is that I'm a participant in that story. And so if you don't believe that story, there's no reason to come up and, and get juice or a cracker because why would you? That's hypocrisy. And if there's anything that people are good at pointing out in church, it's hypocrisy. We're very good at that. But that bread and that cup symbolize a reality of a story that we're all telling and retelling every single week. That Jesus is Lord and Jesus is our Savior. And that our eternal assurance is based on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for giving us your Spirit. Thank you for giving us steps that we can take to pursue you and to follow you and be obedient to you. Thank you for giving us these things like communion that we can partake and share in the joy that is the story of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that we would all repent. I pray that the things that are in all of us that we know that we're not doing to follow you, I pray that you would use your spirit to convict us. And I pray that today we would repent and continue to follow you the way that you desire us to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you that you don't give up. Thank you that you still speak today just as you spoke then. In Jesus' name, amen.